great to see you all, and those of you who are participating online as well, great, great to have you participating with us. Uh, we are continuing in our second Peter series. It's been our summer series. It's coming to a close here very quickly after uh, next week. Uh, we conclude the series, and then we're going to do a one week on Jude, which one chapter book that uh, is very similar to Second Peter in many ways. So we're combining that, and then we're going to start on Genesis chapter 1 and various themes that arise out of Genesis uh, chapter 1. Uh, last week, our uh, attendance was high enough to create some kind of alarms uh, for us. I want to explain what I mean. Uh, when you have a summer week that's very much like a, you know, almost midwinter type week in terms of attendance, it, uh, it means that in the fall, uh, things could get really, really crowded. And so I just want to encourage you to, if you haven't checked out our Saturday night service, not, not everybody, okay, that would not be good. <laughs> but if you haven't checked out our Saturday night service, uh, it's, it's been really cool. The Saturday nights, uh, several Saturday night people formed a team to make Saturday nights great. We've got some extra elements Saturday nights. It, it, is, it, is, it really captures the heartbeat of Five Oaks. So invite some friends, maybe some people from your small group, Check out Saturday night and consider, you know, this fall as things start new, maybe making that a regular thing in your life. Just consider that if you would, please. We're going to put more chairs into, uh, hopefully it's not going to feel too crowded. We've gotten got used to the, the space that we've gotten since uh, COVID. We've added some more, but we probably have to add a few more too. All right, so today we're looking at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, mostly verse 13. Actually, today we'll look at 11 and 12 Next week, uh, we'll bring those in as we conclude all of it. Uh, but if you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. You can grab one of those. If you're using a smartphone or tablet device, we are using the New International Version, the NIV. So encourage you to open up to that. Second Peter's way at the end of the Bible. So get to Revelation and then a bunch of short letters. Uh, work your way back uh, and you'll find Second Peter. So today we're going to be talking about developing your spiritual imagination. And uh, I'm going to be calling it spiritual daydreaming. And I, I'm, I'm going to be making a case and then explaining how uh, we can do this and why it's so important. I'm going to be making a case that uh, spiritual daydreaming is a crucial spiritual discipline in our lives. And I'm not playing around. I'm not joking. I'm, I'm serious. Spiritual daydreaming is a crucial spiritual discipline in our lives. You might call it something else by the time you're done, but that is uh, what I think is, is the truth. So what is it? What's spiritual daydreaming? Specifically, the way that it's spoken of in this passage is living with a, a clear picture and hope and looking forward to Jesus' return, the new creation, Living with that in mind as we're living our present lives now. When we fail to daydream about what God has in store for us for all of eternity, we actually, if you take Scripture seriously, we actually waste a lot of our lives and we miss out on God's peace. So let's pray as we do every week, asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate His Word. This prayer is based on this passage in particular. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray as you instructed. We pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you that that day 
is coming. Your son promised it. Your spirit assures our hearts that no matter what we're experiencing now, a better day is coming, a day when righteousness, justice, peace, and flourishing will be the new normal. Help us to live in light of that future. Grow us in a hunger and thirst for righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we have one of our five oakers is going to be reading the text, but before we do, I'd like to set up a little context so that you get the most out of it as we read it. This passage, 11 through 13, answers a so what question based on what came before it. So Peter has been focusing on the return of Christ, and Peter now says that if Jesus is going to return and renew all things, then the so what is we should live holy and godly lives. Now, there's going to be a little bit of phrasing in the passage that we'll get to next week, just kind of to explain why is he talk about some kind of destruction. It's actually unusual in the Bible, a destruction of things preceding the new creation. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that next week. Uh, holiness and godliness are terms that can be greatly misunderstood. Uh, so we'll touch on that a little bit today, but we'll especially talk about it more next week. Uh, so let's follow along as we read from 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3, 11-13 Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. The day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. All right, so we're going to start with the last verse, really going to focus on the last verse there, verse 13. It's key to what comes before it, and I really want to plant myself here uh, for today. I want us to plant ourselves here for today because I think it's so important, it's so difficult to live in light of the future that we're going to spend some time there. So look at verse 13 again. It says, but in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven, and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So the Bible story tells one story, and the story it tells is a story that begins with creation and ends with new creation. Um, and Peter is talking specifically about what is described at the end of the Bible story. It's a new beginning, but it's the end of the Bible story. And it's where God is going to renew all things. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, where God is going to dwell again with his people, just like he did in the Garden of Eden before humanity's rebellion. Now, if you don't know that story or who are the characters in it or how it flows or how it all fits together, one of the things that we do as a church is we, we have a course called The Story of God. It's six weeks long. We'll have at least three sessions, maybe four this fall. And if you'd like more information about that, put Story of God on your Connect card, and we would love to have you, have you go through it. But notice he says, we are looking forward to it. Verse 13, but in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. And to look forward to something describes a longing. It's not like, we're looking forward, and there it is. You know, it describes a longing. But it doesn't just 
describe belonging, it also requires a forward-looking mindset, a mindset that isn't so caught up in the moment that we can't see beyond this moment and see our life and the moments that we live in in light of what's, what's coming. Uh, we apply this in all areas of our lives. If you uh, studied hard for a class so that you could get a good grade, and uh, you didn't particularly like studying, some people love studying, but if you didn't particularly like studying, you did it because you were looking forward to something. <laughs> so you, you went through that pain. If you save money uh, for the future, you do that not because you wouldn't like to spend that money now, although some people hate spending money. You, you do it because of what the result is going to be. You look forward to something. And so we do that in all of life. Uh, when, and this is going to be kind of an extended illustration, but I think it's really important to, to understand this. Um, I used to hate winter. I grew up in Miami area, you know, and it just kind of sticks in your bones and the cold gets to your bones. So it's, you know, it took me a long time to get used to winter. I like winter now for weird reasons, but I like winter. Um, but I made it through winter for years when we moved up here uh, by looking forward. Uh, and, and what I look forward to were always things that were just on the horizon. All right, it's going to be different when we talk about looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth. But I did it by looking forward to something that was into the not-too-distant future. So when November got bad, and it gets bad, if you're new to Minnesota, anybody, November is not a, a, a lovely month. When November gets bad, I would look forward to this. I would look forward to Christmas, and especially a white Christmas. And when we lived here in Woodbury, before we moved to Prescott, uh, one of the things that we had that a lot of other people in Woodbury didn't have, we had white Christmases when nobody else had white Christmases because our backyard just didn't get enough sun. And so I remember one time we had some people over and their, their kids are looking out our back window and it's Christmas Eve and our backyard is filled with snow and there was no snow to be seen Anywhere else in Woodbury? I'm sure there were in certain places, but I hadn't seen any. But our backyard still had snow, and they were like, you get a white Christmas, that's not fair. So I would look forward to a white Christmas, and if it was cold, bitter cold, or whatever, the change of temperature, the darkness, all that kind of stuff, I made it by looking forward to Christmas. But Christmas, I used to say, I wish Christmas came like at the end of February, so I could look forward to Christmas for three months. But Christmas would come and go. How would I make it to the next thing? Well, this is how I made it to the next one. Okay, this, this isn't the play, of course, but this is the game of the, uh, the, the miracle in Minneapolis game. So look forward to the playoffs, whether the Vikings made it or not. I'd still look forward to the playoffs, and I'd look forward to the Super Bowl. And so that happens in early February. So how do I make it through January as, as Christmas was over? Playoffs, NFL playoffs, love NFL. NFL playoffs, the Super Bowl. That's how I made it through that. Uh, then... Uh, there was still February to go through. And so in February, I would think about our spring break trip, which we would almost always do to someplace warm, really warm, so that we could enjoy um, a little break. And I used to always tell people, never go someplace warm in January or February unless you're going to stay there, because you got to come back, and there's a lot of winter to go. 
So, you know, March, early April, we would go on spring break. Now, uh, how would I get through uh, April? April's not always great, right? Um, so I kind of got through it looking forward to May. May is usually nice. It didn't matter if April was bad, though, because I had expected it to be good. So it sustained me. I expected it to be good. It wasn't good. I got May. That's all right. So that's how I, I made it through. And so I want to ask you a question. Is there something right now, just so you can kind of get into this as an exercise, is there something right now that you're looking forward to that's maybe not too, too far out there? And how does it impact you right now? Now, maybe there's not a whole lot that you're looking forward to because maybe the thing that's on the horizon is a surgery or finding a new job or a very, very difficult project at work or going back to school and you don't like school or anything else that brings some, a, a sense of dread or anxiety or, or fear. That might be what's in your you know, nearest horizon. Well, Peter still gives us something, gives you something to look forward to. And he gives us something better than all my daydreaming about what was coming up in the next month. Now, as I said, I like winters now, but when I didn't, I learned that, I'm not kidding about this, I had this philosophy, I mean, what I just shared with you, I've shared with lots of individuals, especially people that move here from California, or someplace like that, or Texas, I go, let me tell you how to make it through winter. It may work for you. And so this is a very clear philosophy. What I learned is that it, is, it, that it was a discipline. It was a discipline. When I hated winter, I realized I could have dwelled on how cold and dark it was, but I made myself daydream about something that I was looking forward to. And Peter talks about looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. And so, um, really, when we look forward to that, what we are doing is what I'm calling spiritual daydreaming. Spiritual daydreaming doesn't just happen. It doesn't happen. I mean, the other stuff is so immediate that sometimes that can just happen. But spiritual daydreaming doesn't just happen. Looking forward is a skill. And it's a skill, especially looking forward to the new creation is a skill, and it's a skill that can be developed. Now, again, it feels way, way out there. It's not a skill that develops easily. It's especially hard the younger we are, okay? I don't know why I said we there. The younger you are. <laughs> you know, it's, it makes it harder to think about you know, when you feel, when you're at a stage in life where a lot of life, you feel like, should you live, there's a lot of life ahead of you, it's a lot harder to think about kind of the end of the world as we know it and the beginning of something new. It may feel way, way out there, but it's not a skill that we can't do even when we're younger. We can learn to spiritual daydream. At the end of the sermon, I'm going to give you a story that is going to offer some practices that you can begin right now, whatever age you are with spiritual daydreaming. But first, to, to get, we need to get a better, deeper, more inspiring vision of the new creation. If you don't have an inspiring vision of when Christ returns, you're, it's gonna be hard to daydream about it, right? It's gonna be like, it seems too out there, it seems too you know, 
Who knows what it is? That kind of a thing. So I think we have to get very specific. And part of my kind of going through, getting ready, going through winter, especially making it from February through March, part of that was that I got very specific about thinking about spring break. Very specific. So the place that we went to was a walking distance from Starbucks. And we could have made coffee where we stayed, but I never made coffee where we stayed. Never go out to get groceries the first day, never get coffee, because I loved the walk to Starbucks in the palm trees, in the warmth hitting, so I would get up early, I'd go get the coffee for Lois and me, loved the sunshine hitting my face, the warmth of my, on my skin. I can, I can put myself there because I actually practiced this for a long time. Before I would go to sleep in the middle of those winter nights when, ugh, again, is a Floridian, ugh, you know, I would make myself think about some specific, I'd make myself think about the walk I was going to take to Starbucks. <laughs> and I would, I, I, I can see it so clear, the sidewalk that I walked on, the palm trees, I can see it, see it all. And I never made it to Starbucks, I would always fall asleep before <laughs> making it there. But I made myself imagine this. So let's get specific about the new creation. Uh, and, 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 and hopefully it captures your imagination a little bit. And different people are going to, it's going to cap, aspects of this are going to capture your imagination a little bit more than others. So I want to talk about three aspects of the new creation that should capture our imagination. One of them is vocational wholeness. By vocation, vocation means calling, but it's oftentimes applied to our calling, meaning my work, what I do. Uh, my raising of children, my job that I go to, my career, my schooling, whatever. That's vocation can apply to all those things. And, and so it has to do with vocational uh, life. It has to do with leadership. It has to do with the challenges that we experience by the work that we are called to do. And all of that is going to be there in the new creation. Can't offer a whole theology of this right now, although Genesis 1 will take us there. But we're created for meaningful work. We're created for meaningful work. And I think in the Sermon Application Guide, there's a question that has to do with some of the passages that deal with this, just a little sampling of it. But when in the Bible it says that we are made in the image of God, it is very, very clear what that means. It means more than this, but the first thing it means is that we are workers. And it's clear from the passage. You can look at Genesis 1. We'll go into this uh, in a few weeks in great detail, but if I can have Genesis 1, the next slide up there. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that, why, why? So that they may rule. And, and then, so God created mankind in his own image, and then it says, God blessed them and said to them, fill the earth and subdue it, rule. <laughs> All right, so when you read the rest of the story, what ruling means is work the land, work the creation, do good things, create flourishing for humanity, create jobs, all those kinds of things are the things that get included. Use your skills. All that kind of thing is included. Jesus taught that when he returns, and he mostly talked about it in terms of bringing his kingdom in its fullness. That's one of the ways that we talk about the new creation. He said when he returns, there will be rewards for his people. What's the reward? <laughs> 
Uh, one of the rewards it talks about is more responsibility. And you go, I don't want more responsibility. It's driving me crazy. It makes me anxious. I can't sleep at night because of my responsibility. No, no. It's going to be more responsibility without anxiety, without fear, without all those things, without the toil that we have now. In Genesis 3, when we decide to go our own way, that's part of the re result is our vocation becomes toil. Okay, it doesn't mean there isn't still good. We're, there's still aspects of the whole new creation. There's all of that that's still part of everything, but it's going to be work without toil. And then we get tastes of it. And they go, I don't really particularly like going to school or I don't particularly like my job. My kids, kids drive me crazy. Whatever it might be. You get tastes of it along the way. So if you get a promotion because you have really dedicated yourself to your work and it's been noticed and it's been rewarded. And very specifically, you're really good at this, this, and this. We want you to teach other people to do that and manage other people in doing that. You get a promotion, that's a taste, it's a preview of the joy of work in the new creation. If you are taking a really difficult course and you study really, really hard in that course and you get an A, that's, that's a taste, that sense of satisfaction for having worked hard and experienced something positive. If you win a championship in a sport, you get a standing ovation in a performance, it's a taste. If you complete a challenging project at work and you, you sit back and you look at it and you just go, oh, that's a taste of that. These are just samplings, but they're, they're tastes also of the new creation, the joys and satisfaction of work. So what can we look forward to in the new creation? We can actually look forward to meaningful and satisfying work without toil without all the frustrations and losses and failures that we experience along the way. A second thing that we can look forward to um, is relational wholeness, relational wholeness. Now you get pictures and feelings of this all the time. We had a couple weeks ago, Lois was out on our deck, having her coffee, reading the paper, maybe doing her quiet time. And she saw a neighbor, we're kind of up on a hill, and saw one of our neighbors, and the neighbor was down there and looked up. I think she yelled, hey, Teresa. And Teresa goes like, like you know, like this. And she comes out, she goes, it's so nice to know our neighbors. You know, it's so, and, and it, part of it is because since we moved to Prescott, I don't know, things, it's, it's like there's, we've experienced more community there with our neighbors and even with people in the town because of a whole con conglomeration of things but she just had that feeling of warmth. As she said that to me, I, I felt it too. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. That's such a, that's such a great, great feeling. Um, think about family times around the dinner table or going out with good friends and sitting around the table and eating great food. Uh, think about sitting around a bonfire and talking. Middle school, uh, summer camp, uh, the camp getaway this summer. We'd, I wasn't there, but we did a first time big bonfire sharing what you're learning type thing at the end of the week. It's one of the highlights that I kept hearing people talking about. And I thought, and some of you can think about bonfire experiences, whether it was at a youth camp or whether it was uh, uh, just with family and friends, and there's something about the darkness and the light and the fire that gets you talking 
and sharing things from your heart, and you're getting a taste of the wholeness, the relational wholeness of the new creation. Um, at a, it might be other great memories. It might be a memory of fishing with your dad when you were a kid or going out for coffee as an adult with your mom. And maybe you don't get to do that anymore. You think back to that, and there's a warmth, it's the relational wholeness. It's a, it's a taste. We were, our small group did a, one of our summer socials. We went to Red Wing uh, for their summer concerts they do on Wednesday nights. And uh, a couple of singers, teachers in Red Wing that we really like, we've heard before at restaurants. And, and it was, there was these people that came with hula hoops, and they, they had probably 15 hula hoops. The kids were constantly up front doing hula hoops and dancing and having fun. And I, I captured a, a little tiny bit here to share with you. You can see the video. Look right here. Hula hoops. Which is one of the, the people sitting next to us from our small group, they go, we're from a small town. We're eating this up. And how can you not eat it up? It was just like that all evening long. And it's, it's that kind of one of those moments to give you a picture of the relational wholeness that we're going to experience. By the way, that father and daughter dancing, amazing. I mean, I didn't even capture some of the best stuff where he's twirling her around and she's like, you know, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> so um, it might be, you know, a time in your life think when um, romance is budding, new love is budding. Um, but romance and love is not for everyone, and uh, it's not going to happen for everyone, but we can all have really, really deep friendships, and we long for that, and we experience that. Then biblical images of the new creation and this relational wholeness, uh, it's constantly feasts, food, wedding parties, uh, it's, it's because that's what we were created for. We were created for this, not just work, but feasting and food and fellowship and parties. Uh, it's no accident that the Old Testament law is filled with prescribed times when we're supposed to rest, when the people of Israel were supposed to rest and where they were supposed to feast and have time and just like drop everything and, and go get food and go get drink and celebrate before me. This is, this is what we're made for. Um, but imagine doing that without the barriers that we have now to relational wholeness. Because however good it is, we get a taste of it. However good it is, it doesn't last a lot of times. Sometimes there's barriers created by past hurts with some of those people. Uh, there's all of us with our self-centered behaviors. Some of us talk too much. Some of us don't talk at all, which makes it really hard on people who talk too much, not to talk too much. And it just, it just creates, um, it creates problems. Um, just think of different politics that we have. I mean, you can, even, you can even belong to the same party, but even within that party, there's like major divisions. And so think when we gather together in heaven, there's not going to be the barriers. In the new creation, there's not going to be barriers of politics. 
that's going to be getting in the way. And it's not because only people from your party are going to be there. <laughs> All right? I think you know that. I think you know that, but I think we all know that, but we really have to tell ourselves that and remind ourselves that. No barriers to love, to joy around the table. And, um, and really, this ties to the previous one about vocational wholeness. There's going to be a wholeness of working together. Okay, I love the sitting across the table. I don't really like, prefer working next to someone sweating, you know, a sweating. Some of you prefer, you know, the table thing is okay, but there is nothing more fulfilling than working together on something where you work really hard, really hard, and you're sore at the end of the day. It's part of that relational wholeness. So we're talking about the kind of looking forward that leads to living a, a holy and godly life. Okay, what are we looking forward to? There's one more thing that we're looking forward to, and that's emotional and psychological wholeness. And I think in our day and age, I mean, you look at all the surveys, the amount of anxiety from like this age all the way to the end of your life that we're experiencing these days. We're, we're looking forward to emotional. You should not be a difficult one to look forward to. Um, there are images in scripture of the peace that we'll experience as a lion and a lamb lie together of weapons being reshaped into farming utensils, of promises that there will be no more tears, that there will be nothing to fear. David Allen, the creator of the Getting Things Done Productivity System, likes to use images from karate because he does karate, and he uses one that I'm not exactly sure what it means, but I love how it sounds. <laughs> he says, get, get all that stuff that you're carrying in your head and that's creating anxiety, get it down into a system. He says, so you can experience what he calls mind like water, mind like water. And um, you've experienced those moments in your life where you have a mind like water experience. I've got one from one of my favorite professional journals, The Onion. Um, Man gets life in order for 36 minutes. So it's, it's written like a, like a real story and how he sat down after dinner, and uh, it says, it was nice to get some chores out of the way, Oberlin told reporters, acknowledging that for more than a half an hour, he experienced no regrets, despair, or frustration of any kind, felt really good. <laughs> so maybe you've had 36 minutes of it combined in your life, where everything is in its place. Um, so in the new creation, that feeling doesn't end because everything is in its place. That's what creation, new creation is described as. It's the way it's supposed to be. The ordered, I mean, we're gonna look at this in Genesis 1 again. Genesis 1 is about God ordering things in his way and being sovereign over the order that he creates and the peace and the love that we get to participate with him and with each other because of that. So imagine a perpetual sense of order, tranquility, Zero anxiety, zero nervousness, no fear, because there's nothing for you to fear for yourself or for others. No more having that nagging feeling that you've hurt someone's feelings, that you've blown an assignment, that you don't have enough money for something that's important. You wake up each morning with no nagging feelings. If you wake up at night, 
Your thoughts don't go immediately to that email that you forgot to send or that thing that may have been misunderstood. None of that is there. That job that you dread, no more dread because you'll love your job. You love what God calls you to do in the new creation. Again, I can't go into it uh, in detail, but look, look at what it says at the end of this passage. He says, the last phrase is where righteousness dwells. Now, if, if you haven't taken in our justice series that we did sometime in the last two years, I highly recommend it. Just go back online and, and watch it. But one of the things that we talked about in there is how in Scripture, justice and righteousness are two sides of the same coin constantly. And, uh, and that a lot of the times when you read righteousness, it assumes justice. And when you read justice, it assumes righteousness. And so it's also closely related to the, um, the broader concept of peace, shalom, that we get in Scripture. It's a, it's a piece of things being rightly ordered, but it also is a resulting piece of tranquility that we experience when things are as they should be, the way that they're supposed to be. It's about human flourishing. It's about our creation flourishing. So, just like I rehearsed my walk to Starbucks, we can rehearse the new creation. This leads, Peter says, to a godly life. We have a godly and holy life by looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth. Um, what is a holy and godly life? We'll look at, at a little bit more next week, but holy and godly lives are lives lived increasingly in line with the way, if we're growing in it, growth means I am more and more living in line with the way that God has designed me to live in every way. So as we wrap up today, I want to talk about a couple of practices that can help you practice looking forward, rehearsing, going forward. So I recently heard an interview with a pastor and author named Scott Sauls, and Scott Sauls is partially known because he's written about six books, but he's also partially known because he spent five years uh, working under Tim Keller in New York City, and Tim Keller is you know, been arguably one of the most, if not the most, influential pastor uh, in the last couple of decades. Um, and so he's being interviewed on Rebuilders podcast. I've, I've got the episode in the outline. And he was asked in that episode, he was asked about what he learned from his time serving under, under Tim Keller. Tim Keller right now is, uh, has stage four pancreatic ca cancer. And so, um, I want you to hear what he says about what he learned and what stuck with him more than anything else. Let's watch. But yeah, you know, I, I went there, Mark, thinking, okay, this is the person that has essentially been a, an informal mentor to me for years, and um, God used him to ignite my own, you know, vision for... Um, you know, ministry to the city and ministry to diverse communities, uh, thoughtful apologetic uh, approach and, and such, and thought, you know, what a great thing, what a wonderful thing it'll be to get to, to work in the same, you know, space, to, 
uh, get that direct leadership and mentoring and, and be in the environment, which was, of course, absolutely wonderful. I, in my current philosophy of ministry, I'd say I probably am 90% indebted to Tim and his vision for what we're doing now in Nashville. Um, but uh, those weren't the things that I, that I left New York with, uh, as far as Tim is concerned. What I left New York with, even though I still believe he's one of the greatest, if not the greatest, English-speaking preacher of our time for the urban context, um, I, what I learned was um, you know, the, the, the importance and significance of a private life mm. that, that seamlessly matches the public platform. Mm. Um, Tim is a, a person of, of deep, uh, private, personal integrity, uh, deeply committed for decades to uh, this, the, the quiet, uh, unseen spiritual forma- formation practices. Uh, for you know, nearly 60 years, he's, he's prayed through the entire book of the Psalms once a month for, wow. for over 60 years, wow. read through the Bible at least once a year uh, for over 60 years, and reads about 80 or so books a year to, to learn and, and you know, feed his mind and his soul. Uh, and he's a man of deep prayer. If you know anybody has read his book on on prayer, you'll you'll get a window into his his you know prayer life and methodologies and so on. But but yeah, he, he also uh, was remarkable in the way that he received criticism, including unfair criticism. Anybody with a with a public um, you know the, the level of public influence that he has is going to receive uh, a good bit of critique and, and a lot of you know especially in the social media age. And um, never once in five years did I, did I witness him get defensive or strike back or become cynical about a critic. Uh, instead, he, he was always asking the question, even of unfair critiques, is there a kernel of truth in there somewhere that I can mm-hmm. learn from and use as an occasion to repent and learn of Jesus's uh, grace afresh? And, and so, so that was pretty remarkable. Um, deeply committed marriage between him and Kathy. Uh, and they struggle and suffer well. Uh, you know, the current cancer uh, battle that Tim is in is actually his second battle with cancer. He'd had uh, thyroid cancer some years prior. And um, then, and especially now, I'm, I'm sure you've heard and read, you know, maybe Tish Warren's interview with him in the New York Times, among other things that he said publicly. But he's saying, you know, as I'm, as I'm living with an incurable cancer, uh, my biggest fight is not with the cancer, but with my own response to cancer. And, you know, I'm, I'm finding that all the truths that I've been, you know, cramming into my mind and heart for all these many years are coming home to me in a way that they never have before. And he said, Kathy and I are both actually happier and more joyful and at peace than we've ever been in our entire lifetimes. Um, which, you know, uh, that says a lot about the person. So, so if anybody that's listening as a ministry leader, uh, and you want to be like Tim Keller, that's how you get there. You read the Bible for 60 years, every single day, and you pray through the Mm -hmm. Psalms and you receive Mm -hmm. criticism well, and you, you, you commit to having a private virtue that, that matches or exceeds your public platform. I said earlier that it's, it's harder to look forward to the new creation, probably the younger you are, when you feel you have a lot of life ahead of you. But I think Scott Sauls hits the nail on the head when he points to practices that Keller started very early in life. I'm pretty sure his math is off, unless Tim Keller started reading the Bible through in the Psalms, praying the Psalms every month at age 10 or so. Uh, but it's 50 years, at least that he's been doing that. And so, I mean, he reads through the Psalms. Why? Because the Book of Common Prayer takes you through, it was designed to take you through all the Psalms every month, to pray the Psalms every month. Uh, Of all the spiritual disciplines, study after study shows this. Strongest correlation between spiritual maturity 
and spiritual disciplines is found in the discipline of Bible reflection. And when that gets combined with prayer, it's powerful. And, it, and you don't have to read through the Psalms every month, okay? It's, you don't have to shoot for that. In fact, if you're not reading the Bible and you shoot to read through the Psalms every month, you will fail. And if you succeed, it's because you're probably a very anxious, driven person, and you're not going to enjoy it. <laughs> All right, you grow into that. Um, and maybe you never grow into it. Not everybody grows in the same way. But it is a crucial spiritual discipline. And it is what, when someone like Keller is facing death, and he says, this is the happiest that Kathy and I have ever been. That all that scripture and prayer, walking with God, that I've crammed into my life all these years, I'm experiencing the fruit of that now in my life. That means now. That's, that develops our spiritual daydreaming. You're not going to spiritual daydream by lying down at night and walking through the streets of gold. You know, kind of like I did going to Starbucks. But you're going to do it by immersing. We're going to do it by immersing our lives in God, in his greatness, in his vision. And we get that from Scripture. We get that from Scripture. Let's begin our response uh, now to God's word. And as I said last week, you know, we're spending a lot of time here talking about forward-looking last week, this week. Uh, we're reminded again that Jesus gave a forward look as he had the, the, the Last Supper with his disciples. He said, I'm not going to drink from the fruit of the vine until I drink from it in my kingdom. There's that picture, that feasting, that party, that table around the table together with his people, with us. And so now we get a taste of it, right? We get a taste of it, not because we're just eating bread, but because he went through what he went through. His body was broken for us. And his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Father, we thank you for being a good and gracious and loving God. We thank you that you share a vision of what can be in our lives now and what will be in fullness in our lives in the future. I pray, Father, that that fullness, that reality would shape our lives now. We need you. We need Holy Spirit. We need the insight the motivation, the will to do what you've called us to do. So we turn to you for that. Help us to live that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.